Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm Rachel Yucatel, your host. Our next guest today founded Cosmo Girl Magazine and was the youngest editor-in-chief ever at Seventeen Magazine. Do you remember these magazines? They were amazing at the time. She shocked media when she decided to leave the high-profile fashion industry by taking on another tough job, motherhood. Why did she do it? How did she do it? It's going to be so interesting to hear in her own words. She has been incredibly open about the obstacles in her personal life, such as her difficult divorce and recent cancer her diagnosis, but through her struggle, she's found peace and purpose. I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. I love her so much. I respect her so much, and I think you guys will really enjoy the show. Her name is Atuza Rubenstein, and you are going to be so impressed with her story. So Atuza, thank you so much for joining me. I just wanted to tell you that I have a place on my podcast where people could write in and tell us the kind of guests they want, and I got more than a handful of people that mentioned your name and said, I would love to hear her <laughs> <love> story. <laughs> I would love to hear her talk. So I'm so happy that you took me up on my Thank offer. Thank you. And Thanks it's for having so me. so nice to meet you. So fun. Um, so tell me how you would uh, explain who you are to people at this moment. At this moment, I would say that I'm the mother of three children mm-hmm. um, and I'm a writer and I'm really very much living in the I don't know. You know, I at one point had a very big career that was very public. Mm -hmm. Uh, I walked away from that to kind of find myself. And I feel like I've been almost on a pilgrimage. And I I, through that time, I got divorced recently. I'm actually not divorced yet. Um, It takes time, I guess, for some people. And I feel very pregnant with something, mm-hmm. um, but I guess it's not time to give birth yet. <laughs> so I'm just kind of gestating with right. my family. I'm writing. I, I have a Substack that I write called a Tucson Edited. And you know, when I was working, I had this very uh, role model kind of vibe of this very young person who became very successful, and I had it all together. But there was a lot happening behind the scenes that mm-hmm. nobody knew about. And so that's part of that's been a big part of what I've been talking a lot about um, recently is right. what was actually going on in my life. Right. So I think your story is really important for a lot of people because I think that so many people are chasing something, mm-hmm. looking for something to fill whatever's going on inside, whether they, they get a powerful job or a powerful man or whatever it is for them that fills that, and they feel like that's their identity. But I think your story is really important because it shows no matter what you have, um, whether it's those things and money included and everyone is putting you on a pedestal, it really matters how you feel inside about yourself and about you know what's important to you, your purpose or your happiness, because otherwise all of that will implode, explode, whatever it is for that person. So I want to tell people that may not be familiar with your story what who you were back when. Yeah. Um, if you can start with your childhood too, because I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's interesting because when you talk about, and we hear a lot of people say, right, it's how you feel inside. It's mm-hmm. not about the stuff on the outside. But when you don't have the stuff on the outside, that sounds like wah, 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 like right. easy for you to say. Like mm-hmm. you went to like the top high school for girls in Manhattan, and you have this incredible career. So I would have said the same. I grew up in Long Island. And it's interesting because my mom is from a very wealthy family, Mm -hmm. but we lost everything when we moved to America. So I'm from Iran Mm -hmm. originally, and I came when I was very little. And my dad went from being a mayor of a town in Iran to driving a yellow cab. Wow. To being a security guard at JFK, to really doing whatever he needed to do to make ends meet, because at a certain point, we could not get any money out of Uh, Iran. I just got chills. That's kind of amazing. And so I had a mom who had a fancy handbag like you, Mm -hmm. but was living as a very poor person. Mm. And to her credit, that woman who has never worked a day in her life got a job. Sometimes she had to work two jobs, including jobs that were not particularly dignified Mm -hmm. and because at a certain point my dad got very sick and he died oh wow and so it just was like kind of a mess and I would be this little girl who would see my mom struggling and she never showed the struggle but 
you can tell times are tough. And I remember saying to her as a little kid, like, I'm going to take care of you one day Mm. and we will have a different life. And so that became my sort of mission in life. And I was dyslexic. So, you know, it wasn't like my siblings are very smart. Like Mm -hmm. my brother is just a brilliant political scientist. My sister was a doctor. And I'm this dyslexic kid who wasn't doing well in school. Mm -hmm. And so it just like, it seemed like there were a lot of things stacked against me, including I was being sexually abused. So as with many immigrant families, um, you know, when the first family, which was us, moves to a country. Other mm-hmm. people come, they stay with you until they kind of make their way. And there was a relative that stayed with us who uh, was molesting me for a long time. And oh, Tucson, I'm so sorry. Wow. And, and But you know what? It gave me a lot of positive, like it gave me a lot of resilience. Mm-hmm. It also made it very easy for me to leave my body, sure. which sometimes it's very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> and other times... Not so. In the long run, it's not healthy. But um, so I just did the most with what I could. Um, When I left high school and went to college, I went to college in Manhattan. I went to Barnard College. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what I wanted to do or be. um, Because, again, my mom wasn't – it wasn't like I could necessarily look to my female role model – but I loved magazines, mm-hmm. you know, when I was growing up. And when you were growing up, we didn't have the internet. Right, exactly. So those magazines were our portal. Yeah. And for me to be able to, like, have this one life at home and then see the beautiful girls right. that were so normal mm-hmm. and, like, going to parties and just doing things in this other way, it was always so mesmerizing to me. And there was a moment, actually, in college where – I remember like somehow a 17 got into my dorm room and I was flipping through it and I saw this article about cutting. I was a cutter. Mm. I had no idea anybody else in the world was a cutter because we did not have the internet. Mm. No one's walking around like, I'm a cutter. Are you a cutter? Right. I was like, oh my God, there is somebody, there are other people doing this thing that I thought was only my thing. And then in reading the article, it said, like, different reasons people might cut. And incest was in there. Wow. And again, we didn't have the internet. So, like, I was like, incest? What exactly is that again? And I went to my Webster's Dictionary and Mm -hmm. I looked it up. And I was like, oh, that happened to me. Wow. And, like, having this moment, you know, that was senior, 11th, uh, senior year in ha- college. I had been very unconscious about that part of my life. That had been something I left in the past. Mm-hmm. And to see that maybe that actually had a hand in mm-hmm. how I was living my life. And what I mean by that is I was a party girl. Uh, by that point, I turned hot, right? Like I had a hot body. I had like <laughs> the hair and I had the fashion. You know, I kind of learned through probably the incest that my sexuality had some power. Mm-hmm. And I used it in college. And um, I would cheat on my boyfriend. Yeah, I just was kind of a little bit of a drama. Like, there was a lot of drama in my life always. Mm-hmm. And I started to kind of think, oh, this could be connected. And I remember I went and I went to the Karen Horney Clinic because they um, did a sliding scale. I wanted to get therapy and to talk about this, but it was $20. Mm-hmm. I couldn't afford that. Right. So I went for one session and I was like, oh, I wish I could get that $20 back because <laughs> I can't keep giving it. Um, but then from there, I started um, – I started – that made me think differently about magazines much more seriously mm-hmm. uh, and that that could be a career path. Right. And so I started interning. Um, I interned at Sassy Magazine. I interned at a magazine called American Health. Mm-hmm. And I did that in college. And um, how did you get those internships? Because those were hard to come by. Yeah, they were. It's funny. The first internship I got was at Rolling Stone. And I had wow. gotten it through the college like career services okay. yeah. office or whatever. And so – I called them to confirm, like, you know, the Friday before the Monday. And the guy who was my point person was like, actually, I was about to call you. The owner's, like, nephew or niece or somebody, like, took your spot. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I was like, 
Jesus. And I was in a sorority, and a girl who was in another sorority who had graduated mm-hmm. um, had told me about a PR intern at a company called Lang Communications mm-hmm. and that they were looking for someone, and she made that connection. And so I ended up doing that instead. Mm-hmm. And so it was PR. It was at a magazine company, but it was the magazine company that owned Sassy. Okay. And so I was a very hard worker. I, that's how I, I really connect with you in mm-hmm. that way. Like, I feel like you're a hustler. Yeah. You work hard. And I was that way, too. Yeah. And and by the way, I like it, which I know you like it, yeah. too. And you're good at it. So mm-hmm. it it also rubs people the wrong way because it's not very a feminine, feminine quality. But you know what? Somebody once said about me that I'm like a man in a woman's body, yeah. and I think you are too. That's what I say about myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why I've always just felt this kinship with you. Yeah. Um, and so I remember on my first day of my internship in the PR department, I hung up on Gloria Steinem. That was like the first thing I did by accident. Oh, I didn't no. Know I was just like horrified. I was like, please don't let this be an indicator of my future. <laughs> oh, God. Um, and she was not happy. But I did say to my boss, like, I will do anything you want. I will work so hard for you, but I want to work at Sassy one day. Uh-huh. Can you, if I do a good job for you, can you put in a good word for me? Mm-hmm. And um, she did. And so then by fall of that year, that was the summer, by fall, I was working at Sassy as an intern. Unbelievable. And then um, I had to pay for school because I was on financial aid. I needed – I was working at clothing stores on Columbus Avenue. Mm -hmm. Um, And in order to give that up, I needed to get a paid internship too. So I simultaneously worked at a company called American Health, which Mm -hmm. was owned by – a magazine called American Health owned by Reader's Digest. They paid. Okay. So I had one paid internship there. I did it for free at Sassy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what kind of things were you doing in your internship? Um, it could be anything at Sassy from like opening boxes, steaming, ironing, could be taking back their library books, um, doing research. I'd interview dermatologists because interview, right. it was beauty and fashion, um, do credits, uh, fact check things. Sassy was all beauty and fashion. At American Health, I also wrote articles or researched articles. Um, that was much more um, buttoned up in terms of learning the real nuts and bolts of how the magazine comes together. I, I would be their model editor. Um, they gave me a lot of responsibility. So I think it's important to to have people understand, though, how – uh, important it is for yourself to be at the bottom mm-hmm. at one point, oh, yeah. like get in at the bottom and even opening those boxes or just being around those people, whether it's in the mail room for some people working, you know, at William Morris or whatever, like those are kind of the best things that you learn because you have to know everything about the company to be able to be at the top, in my opinion. 100%. And, I, and I worked at Bloomberg um, television in the news department and I started on the assignment desk and I had to go in at 4:30 in the morning my shift started at 5 it was the best job I ever had I learned everything from how to get a cup of coffee properly to how to research and how to have a, a educated conversation with Bill Gates or whatever it was you know all the way through the gamut because you have to know you can't just start at the top and I think so many people Nowadays, young people think that jobs like that are below them, and right, I think a sense it's a, of entitlement. Yeah, and I think it's really important to know every bit about the business and know about respect and all those things. So I think it's great that you started at the bottom, oh, yeah. ended up on the top. I was just so excited to breathe the same air as those editors, yeah. you know. Yeah. So to me, it felt I did not have a sense of entitlement. I felt just so honored to be there, um, but also when you start at the bottom. It's appropriate, Mm -hmm. and you can really aim to do an excellent job. Mm -hmm. And when you do an excellent job, even if you're at the bottom, it's a a fantastic feeling. Yeah. And I knew what that felt like. I wanted to always have that feeling of I can do an excellent job and then be in really – a uh, good relationship with yes. those who I'm – I saw it as serving. Like if they said to me, go get my dry cleaning, I'd be like, absolutely. Right. You know, where do you want me to drop it off? <laughs> right. No problem. Right. Like, And then as you move up, you know you've really earned it and you know right. you deserve to be there. And I you never have... asked for a promotion wow. ever in my life. Wow. Not once. I'd always be surprised. Yeah. But I think that to your point, when somebody is working like that mm-hmm. and they don't have that sense of entitlement, you don't want to lose them. Yeah. Exactly. And so you're 
kind of promoting them before they even get dissatisfied. Yeah, right. So remind people what kind of magazines were popular back then or which ones were your influence? Um, well, when I think of my influence, I was, a, I think, a senior in college when Liz Tilbaris's Harper's Bazaar came mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. with Linda Evangelista, you know, with her hand up in the air so beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly that was a time of like Stephen Mizell at Vogue and, oh, but you're going to laugh about this. This is something I feel like you're much more sophisticated than I was as a younger person because you're from the city. <laughs> but are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. When I was in college, like sophomore year before I started interning, I would send letters to everybody, like to hire me, including Stephen Mizell. Mm-hmm. So I sent Stephen Mizell a letter and I asked him to do a test shoot. Like I would like, I can be your stylist for test shoots. He's like the biggest photographer in the world. I just had no <laughs> idea. Right. And I think that to some extent, because I was from Long Island, like mm-hmm. not from a ton of privilege or and also there was no internet so I didn't know who was big who was not I just thought he was an amazing photographer right wouldn't it be great to work with him of course he never responded (laughs) but I always knocked on doors I never stopped myself because I thought something was above me Mm -hmm. and and I think that was ultimately good because Mm -hmm. more doors open the more you knock. Right, right. So you're at graduation, you're graduating from college. Mm-hmm. How do you get your first okay. job? Um, that was such a good setup. I feel like you know the story. So, <laughs> so I will tell you um, for your listeners. But um, one of the things about magazines that's different than working at, say, a finance firm is that there has to be an opening in order to get a job. Mm-hmm. So like my friends at Barnard and Columbia who were going to Goldman Sachs, you know, there were 20 people that were hired every year. Mm-hmm. And so you were vying for those positions. But in mine, it was just kind of like, A, magazines have notoriously been um, a breeding ground for very wealthy girls. That's who has always been um, almost like a finishing school. And here I am, you know, really fought tooth and nail to be able to pay for college, um, mostly, honestly, on financial aid. Um, I just had to pay for my own expenses. So I was definitely not that. And so I was – American Health, the nice folks who were paying me, they did offer me a job. Mm -hmm. They said I could be the assistant to the editor-in-chief. They really liked me. They paid me well. There was benefits. Um, But I was kind of bummed because, I don't know, I was, like, very fashion-y. And Mm -hmm. I was kind of fast, you know. And I was like, okay, I could work at American Health. I should be grateful because I definitely need the job. Yeah. Um, And that was my plan. But I was a little kind of disappointed. What did you major in? Political science. Okay. Only because – it was my brother was a poli sci PhD and I never went to class. And, <laughs> and so yeah, no, I get that. But um, so was it? Were you much better at writing? Were you good at fashion? Like what? What did you think set you apart, or did you think it was because you had these internships? So it was a little bit of experience. Um, I had the experience, but man, I had the thirst and the desire. Mm-hmm. I fucking loved it. I loved it, and I was passionate. I I didn't know what set me apart from yeah. the others. You know, I had no idea. I was such an ignorance is bliss kind of person. Mm-hmm. I just I didn't know, and so um, but. But when I was at the internships, I'd always, like, write handwritten notes to everybody I yeah. met and blah, blah, blah. And so graduation day, as I'm, like, packing up my room with my mom, the phone rings. And I assume it's, like, one of my friends, mm-hmm. like, to make plans for where we're all going to meet later. And it was, hi, this is uh, so-and-so. I'm the beauty director at Seventeen Magazine. I heard amazing things about you. I'm looking for an assistant. And I was like, because <laughs> like you know again as a teenager essentially 17 was like that was it mm. um so i was very excited about that and um so you know we set up a time to come in for an interview and then 10 minutes later the phone calls rings again and it's cosmopolitan fashion oh director of cosmopolitan magazine and cosmopolitan's just so big mm. i mean today you know the whole magazine industry has been decimated. Mm-hmm. So, so to young people, that doesn't mean anything. Right. But there was a time at which Cosmopolitan was the number one magazine in the world. Yeah. And so, although it wasn't my magazine, I just couldn't believe it was Cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I went on that interview too, and I I did them both, and then I was like the waiting game, and I remember being at American Health uh, at my job uh and i got a phone call from cosmo Mm -hmm. and they offered the job 
And I was so excited, of course, to get a job. I accepted it on the spot. I didn't even think because I'd rather work at 17. That was more my thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't even think to say, can I get back to you? I just said yes because I didn't want to miss the opportunity. (laughs) Right, right. You You felt so honored to be given the opportunity. Yeah, and not to have to be in American Health. And so then I called 17 to tell them that I, you know, to take me out of the running. And they were like, no, no, no. We were about to offer it to you. We'll give you, it was like $1,000 more or mm-hmm. something like that, which is not a lot. But at the time, I was but like, a lot <gasps> back then. Or it probably. felt like a lot yeah. to me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, because I'd never had that kind of conversation with anybody. Mm-hmm. And they were like, please reconsider. You can just call them back. And I just felt something in my gut. A, I didn't feel comfortable calling them back. Like that felt like on an integrity level, just it just didn't feel right. And I'm so glad I didn't because there's no way. What ultimately happened is mm-hmm. I was at Cosmo for five years, mm-hmm. um, starting as a fashion assistant. Within five years, I created a magazine called Cosmo Girl right. that I was editor-in-chief of. Uh, and within five years after that, I was editor-in-chief of 17. Mm-hmm. So there's no way that... Less than 10 years later, I'd necessarily be the editor-in-chief of Seventeen if I had started there as an assistant. Right. You know, people always are looking for something from the outside. Yep. Yep. So ultimately, it all really worked out. Right, right. Talk to me about starting a magazine. Yeah. What was that like? How did you do it? Well, it was really hard because when you're a fashion editor, and people probably don't even think about this, but like... There's no reading or writing involved. Like, Mm. you're just going to fashion shows. You're going to showrooms. You're pulling things together for shoots. Um, There's certainly a lot of hard work, but there's almost zero reading or writing. Got it. And I'm a dyslexic. Right. (laughs) And so – and I also – like, the fashion department – I don't know. Do you know a lot of people at magazines and stuff over the years? Yeah, over the years. Like, the fashion department is like its own country. Mm -hmm. It's almost – we used to, like – had the door closed, candles on, smoking cigarettes oh, wow. in the fashion department. Like we were just like smoking nonstop. Mm-hmm. That is not allowed in an office building. Yeah. But like when you're in the fashion department, like you do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And like all those other people just seemed like very nice, responsible people mm-hmm. who work at the magazine. I don't know what they do. I don't know. <laughs> I don't care. I know the managing editor is the really annoying person that's always hassling me about my cell phone bill. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Or like trying to get me to spend less on this or that. But like I just didn't know anything about them. And so I – I but I had to hire a whole staff. Mm-hmm. And I remember at one point the editor-in-chief of Cosmo at the time, Kate White, said to me, you know, there's a lot of sour grapes about the fact – because I was very young. Mm -hmm. We didn't talk about that. I was 26. Right. So that was – today, 26-year-olds do a lot of big things. Back then, almost unheard of. It was crazy. And she said there's a lot of sour grapes over you getting this job. There's a lot of much older, more senior people who thought they'd be in line for the next editor-in-chief job. Um, so why don't you tap into them, ask their advice on who to hire. It'll make them feel good, like you're, you know, respect and value their opinion. And I said, sure. So I sent an email to two of these people, and one of them responded back to me, oh, look, the fashion girl needs a grammarian. Yeah. She didn't mean to send it to me because sure. she, like, ran into my office. This is the early days of mm. email. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, I accidentally sent you an email. You don't even have to read it. You can just delete it. You oh. can just delete it. And um, it was so – and I had already read it. I was like, okay. I never said anything to mm-hmm. her. But I was like, okay, got it. So you knew how people felt about it. There were some people who felt that way. Yeah. yeah. And so from there, I just kind of um, – uh, it was very hard. Again, in the beginning, I was like, we don't need a managing editor. That's mm-hmm. the annoying person that's always hassling everybody. Well, in sh- short order, we were working like 48-hour days mm-hmm. because we had no infrastructure because we had no managing editor. So, like, I kind of learned everything the hard way. Yeah. Um, but it was hard. Mm-hmm. It was, like I said, a lot of 48-hour days, but amazing people. We feel – you know, felt so connected to each other and to what we were doing. It felt not like, um, you know, I used to always say this can't be a pile of papers that we're sending to her house. Like, this girl needs us and we are there to help her. Right. And and About the reader, you mean. About the reader. Yeah. And 
And who was I talking about? I was talking about me. Mm. And so me as a teenager who was being molested, who was, you know, sort of going through the things I was going through, I felt I saw myself in every reader and I, I thought as though I was trying to save a life. Mm. And so in some ways that fueled me. Um, it made it very intense to work with me uh, because I just didn't have that like, we were in a magazine. Sure. Um, there was plenty of that because that's just the nature of that industry mm-hmm. and that business. But um, I was very, very, very kind of serious yeah. um, about the reader. And how did you come up with the topics and – well, I'll, pu- I'll put aside the covers, right, mm-hmm. for right now. But, like, the topics that you said influenced you when you were reading it. Yeah. Um, h- how would you even come up with that kind of thing? It's so funny. So, again, prior to creating Cosmo Girl, I was a senior fashion editor. I had just, like, come back from Milan shows and I was planning the next season's shows. I was kind of a vapid person, to be honest. Oh. Um I was only interested in fashion. Mm. I remember I remember this moment that I can't get out of my head. Oh, I'm sitting on the ground in my apartment and my then I think fiance was on my bed and I'm looking in the mirror putting on my makeup and I was like, I don't understand how these busted girls go out not looking perfect. <laughs> and I was just like my face was like a doll face, right. like everything was in place. And that was me. Like, Mm. I really believed that. Um, I was so into, like, external stuff. Mm. And I think it's because all of the internal stuff was completely unprocessed. Mm -hmm. And Because you were young at that time? Because I was young, I had not yet really talked or had any – had certainly had not had therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, I hadn't processed the incest. Like, there were other things that happened. Like, my dad – one time my dad had a heart attack and I was 12. I was the only person with him. I was like holding him up against a tree with my body. Wow. And I blacked out. I don't know how he got to the hospital. Mm. I don't know how I got home. A lot of things like that had happened. Um, well, it sounds like you became an adult very quickly at a very early age. And I didn't have support, like emotional support because my parents were immigrants. My dad was very sick. My mom was really struggling to make ends meet. I don't fault them for it, but there was really no space for processing. Like when my dad died, um, no one told me. I was 16. And you know, because your daughter's almost that age, like anything happens, we sit down with them. Mm -hmm. We talk to them. Like, you know, we make sure they feel the feelings. Um, My dad died and I kind of just figured it out because they were planning a funeral. Oh, wow. You know, and nobody told me he died. Because they were so enwrapped in their own stuff or they did, wanted to protect you? In their, no, nobody's trying to protect me. They're wrapped in their own stuff. And honestly, like I was – and it could be a cultural thing. There was no parenting. Mm. It was just like I was a child. I, I'm – I was not a planned pregnancy. So my siblings are much older than me. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of feral. Wow. You know, so I just took in whatever I took in. I took the SATs because I knew when the dates were. I would take the checkbook to my mother and say, sign here. Yeah. Other children in different families, like our families today, like we'd say to our children, yeah. have you, well, let's sign you up for an SAT tutor. And when is the SAT? You know, it's like there's no scaffolding for me. Yeah. Which ultimately was a good thing because it made me very strong. But, um, yeah, so I was just very unprocessed, not in my body. Um, I was attractive, so I kind of just went with that, Mm -hmm. you know. like. And and also it seems like you were getting these jobs very early on. Mm -hmm. And to ask for help or to ask for guidance probably didn't probably Psychological help, you mean? Uh, Yeah, or didn't make sense. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Internal help didn't make sense because you had to carry this persona that you were moving up and you were mature and you could handle it. I wasn't even thinking that far. Right. Like that's my point. But maybe looking back. Uh, I think I was really like like a reptile. Hmm. Like I was just doing what was in front of me. I didn't even have – I didn't have – because I wasn't in my body, I wasn't even self-conscious about it. Wow. Um, I remember at one point I went on um, Paxil yeah. um, because after college, my college boyfriend broke up with me and I just – 
really like I could not attend. I couldn't show up to work. Like I was so upset mm. and I needed to be able to function. So right. I, I went to, you know, whatever the insurance suggested to some shrink on 57th Street. I walked by that office all the time and got a prescription and that helped. Yeah. So I didn't get the other kind of support. I didn't process, like, why am I going off the rails? Yes. You know, why is this hitting me so hard? I totally am familiar with that. I remember also in my early 20s breaking up with somebody who I thought was my everything, couldn't function. I was put on Zoloft. Yeah. And I remember, I mean, now I can look back and say, I didn't deal with the situation because the medicine just muted me. Just erased it. Yeah, exactly. Totally. And I think in those days, that was kind of normal. That's how you dealt with it. You just moved on. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I just felt like I, I needed to show up to my job. Mm. So that helped me. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's everything's okay now. And then I met my, um, who ultimately became my husband shortly thereafter. Right. How'd you meet him? Um, I was at, so I, like I said, I went to Barnard and, and my cousin went to Barnard too. And she had a crush on this guy who I was friends with who went to Columbia and he was bartending at some place. And she was like, oh, just come with me. If you come with me, he'll talk to you. And then I could talk to him. And I was like, <laughs> and you remember this, like it was on the Upper East Side, which now we're happy to live and yeah. hang out in. Mm-hmm. But when we were younger, that was very uncool. Right. Right. So I was like, oh, I only go to the tunnel. <laughs> I only go to flowers. I only go to whatever. Right. And so I put on my fashiony outfit and I go with her to this place on the Upper East Side that my friend was bartending and his friend was also bartending there and he like came over and talked to me he was very nice we knew somebody in common and um i did not think he was right for me um but i thought he was a really nice guy and Mm -hmm. i could connect him with somebody and ultimately after a lot of phone calls i went out with him right Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So just going back to the question I asked you, you you guys had great stories mm. within the magazine. Oh, so this is what I was going to tell yeah. you. Um, so I was this totally vapid fashion girl. <laughs> and then I get this opportunity to create a magazine. And part of creating a magazine is you have to create three tables of contents. So you have to create what are the columns, what are the stories, mm-hmm. what are the ideas. And for somebody who's only into fashion, I was kind of like, oh, what am I going to what am I going to write about? And that night, I when I was sleeping in the middle of the night, I wake up and my father, who had been dead for a long time by then, is like at the bottom of my bed. And I like close my eyes, open my eyes three times. He's there. Hmm. I go back to bed. The next morning, everything just gets like whispered in my ear. And I just was like, all these ideas. I don't know where it was coming from, columns, uh, topics, everything. It just, and that was kind of how I operated for the rest of, actually probably the rest of my life, Hmm. is it almost like it opened a portal that the creativity just would come in. It wouldn't be from me. I saw myself as just like the secretary and the executor. Hmm. Um, And so... One of the things that would help me get into that zone is every morning myself and I would make my staff as well for 30 minutes. We wouldn't start working until we read 30 minutes of readers' letters Hmm. just to hear their voice and to really get into their shoes because here we were, although we were very young, we weren't 13, 14, and 15. And uh, I wanted us to always edit and create with them in our heart. Hmm. Um, And so that actually... The New York Times, I remember, did a piece on that, on that system of of um, of, of reading before we before we created and really it. getting to know mm-hmm. your your listener, your reader, and not just get to know her, like almost like create for her, like to, and you read enough that it becomes one big powerful voice, right, right. And you are always on top of and creating trends, right? Not just in the fashion world, but in ideas, what people were thinking. Um, you know, I didn't think of it like that. Like I saw it as like we were serving her, and mm. so we did things that ultimately were new but we weren't doing them to be new like i remember at one point at 17 i created a faith section mm. which was about all different religions and and that was just something that 
and not religion in like the old-fashioned way, um, but in a newer sort of more spiritual way. And that was just something people were not doing. And right. I was bringing people, this is a long time ago, like uh, Don Miguel Ruiz, who wrote The Four Agreements, and all, like uh, Marianne Williamson, like people who were very kind of esoteric, mm-hmm. um, but bringing them in for teenage audience. Right, right. And how did Cosmo Girl do at the time? Yeah, it did okay. Like when it first came out, you know, when you're at these big magazine companies, they invest a lot of money into making you successful. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we did great in that it got greenlit and Mm -hmm. we moved forward. But it was very hard to slug it out with, like, industry – industry sort of celebrities like Seventeen and YM and Teen that had been around for so long, mm-hmm. such established brands. And so when Sarah Michelle Geller, who, you know, was Buffy at the time, which was like a big deal, or Katie Holmes from Dawson's Creek mm-hmm. would be doing a cover, they'd go to the big one of the big guys, not like the new unestablished uh, right. title. So we would get people that were like like the third-rate celebrities. And that's just – that was a tough game to win at. And then this really funny thing happened one day. Um, I have a friend who's a psychic. She was a very famous psychic in, mm-hmm. in the fashion industry. And she had actually predicted the Cosmo Girl thing for me. She had predicted like my whole life actually when I was like 19. Hmm. And she came just for a visit at the office, and I was telling her, like, oh, like, we're just, like, really slugging it through. Like, we need a break. And she goes, I see boys. And I was like, I'm going to what? <laughs> and she's like, I see boys holding puppies. And that day, we were shooting a kind of new band called InSync. Oh, wow. But we were not shooting them for the cover. We were just shooting them for something on the inside. Mm-hmm. And I called the art director on the shoot. I was like, get some puppies on the set now (laughs) and shoot it as a cover. And sure enough, then they blew up. And then we had this cover of InSync holding these Sharpay puppies. Mm -hmm. And it was a big breakthrough for us. And that kind of pushed us into a whole nother stratosphere Mm -hmm. uh, for sales. So Mm -hmm. from then on, we were definitely on the up and up. So speaking of covers, uh, what was your favorite cover that you ever did um Gwen Stefani like we were the first cover for Gwen Stefani we were the first cover for a lot of people at Cosmo Girl that were uh, like Shirley Manson from Garbage like people that I really Mm -hmm. like the first cover of like a teen magazine Mm -hmm. so to speak um but Gwen Stefani far and away because I, I really – I just loved her. I thought she was so special. I remember the people in circulation – you know, the people at magazines who create them are mostly women, but the men in suits. Mm-hmm. It's all men in suits and, you know, the business in the part. Background, yeah, yeah, in the background. And I remember this one guy was like, why are you putting a, like, pink-haired freak on your back to school? Because that's the big mm-hmm. – and he just made me – like, he tried to shame me. And I was just like, all right, you know, I, I, let's see. And it sold, like – gangbusters because right. it was so unusual right um so that was definitely my favorite cosmo girl cover. right okay so you end up being editor-in-chief of 17 magazine and mm-hmm. also your popularity kind of grows you're on yeah. charlie rose mm-hmm. your people are um putting you on skits in snl mm-hmm. what was that like well it was amazing mm-hmm. you know for the little girl who felt very unseen um i felt great um, but there was also the proliferation of um, sort of social media gawker. Mm. And gawker, uh, who I'm sure loved you too mm. at a certain point, loved me. Mm-hmm. And they would write about me every day. And it mm. could be like I'd go to – let's say I'm coming off of doing the Today Show and i just go pick up a sandwich on my way to the office for breakfast Somebody would see me. If I see somebody do this, I know, oh, fuck, they're going to write to Gawker. And they'd yeah. be like, oh, Atusa looking like a drag queen, you know, like oh, like she'd been up all night. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay. Um, so that part was a really unsettling, the mm-hmm. Gawker part. Um, mostly because I still, like my foundation was still not super solid. Mm-hmm. At that point, I was in therapy. Um but I still, you know, like I was having affairs. I, you know, there were things about my life that people didn't know. Right. 
And to be under that kind of surveillance, particularly from Gawker, like if they knew what I was really doing, sure. you know, they're talking about, oh, she looks like a drag queen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't know I'm doing X, Y, and Z or that I'm pregnant with like somebody's baby who works at my company, you know, like, right. ah! <laughs> right. And so that was very unnerving. Right. So let's get into that part of it. Yeah. So talking about what's going on internally, you mentioned you had some affairs. Mm-hmm. You had been married at this time. Mm-hmm. How long do you think you were married before you started to stray? A few months. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. And was that – well, you tell me why you think that was. Um, I think that I think that my introduction to sexual relationships had a secret component because mm. of the incest. Yeah. Um, so secret sex, I think – felt okay mm-hmm. um there was always like an a, a hint that not a, more than a hint that my father was somebody who strayed mm-hmm. um that that was kind of part of that was part of the dynamic um i married somebody who i really really loved and was my best friend and my true like safe place um, but we were not sexually compatible. Right. And um, for me, and and that was, you know, I just, I didn't know, I don't know. It's like, it wasn't like I was like racked with guilt. Again, partially because I was kind of raised feral. Yeah. Um, I wasn't thinking about it. And I'm not in my body. Yeah. I wasn't one of those people that's like racked with guilt about it. Mm -hmm. I -hmm. just was kind of like went with the flow. Right. I think that's so important for people to really hear. So there are people that get married for security and Mm -hmm. safety, but they are missing that sexual component Mm -hmm. or that intimate component that makes them feel excited and better about themselves Mm -hmm. almost. But they don't want to lose that, you know, closeness with somebody. And it's almost like – I don't want to say a parental figure, but someone that just creates this. Family. Yeah, family. Family. And someone you don't want to hurt or lose, Mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily the person you want to have sex with. And it could be, in my case, that having sex with a safe person was not part of my wiring Mm. because of the incest. Yeah. And there's other components on his side that's his story to tell. Right. So um, I I think that in many ways he was the perfect partner for me Mm -hmm. and I was the perfect partner for him. Did it affect your marriage? I mean, clearly you were able to stay married for many years. Um, We were very, very close. Mm. Um, We were very, very close. And I wasn't um, necessarily losing myself in these other things. You weren't falling in love. I, I was, but, like, I'm in love with you, too. I'm in right. love. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I'm in love. Like, I'm in love with everybody. Mm. Like, it wasn't the kind of thing that I, – I was just floating above it all. Right. I right. wasn't – today, after all the things I've learned and gone through and sort of worked through, I actually wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that – I wouldn't – I wouldn't not do that I, I would not do that because it's wrong. I wouldn't do that because it doesn't feel good. Yeah. It's not the right thing to do. Right. You know, it wouldn't feel right because I feel things now. Yeah. I am in my body. Mm-hmm. But back then it was just like, oh, yeah, let's go out. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, this is fun. I'm going to be in L.A. for a week on a shoot. Like, yeah, of course, obviously. Like, yeah. that's going to be more fun than – yeah. Um, yeah. So you had not had kids at the time, but you no. did get pregnant with someone else's? Yes. I terminated that pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And that was actually the beginning of the end. Right. Like when that happened, that was somebody I was in a relationship with who um, uh, was also married. And I definitely loved him. But again, I wasn't lost in it. Yeah. You know, I didn't need to be lost in it. I had a, a wonderful husband. Mm. Um, and... When I got pregnant, I was like, oh, shit, this shit's real. Mm. Like, this isn't actually just playing around because it just felt like playing around before. And when I got pregnant and had to terminate the pregnancy, that felt heavy. You know, I didn't terminate it like I was getting my nails done. I was like, oh, 
this hurts. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but yet it needed to be done. It was I was at the height of my career at that point. In fact, one of the most sort of famous pictures of me that people always use to illustrate me when they're talking about that time, I was pregnant. Mm. And I would say within months, I resigned. Wow. Yeah. So what you said it was the beginning of the end, and that this is what I want to get to here because it's so important. How could you go from having it all kind of which obviously was a big part of your identity at this Mm -hmm. point too, which I really understand. How do you say, wait a minute, I have to take care of myself when you kind of haven't been for your whole life? Well, it's a really good question. And the very honest and true answer that I don't think most people would say is it's not about necessarily one magical moment. It's about um, following my instinct in baby steps. So it wasn't like when that happened, I was like, I have to leave everything. Mm. I was, I felt something isn't working about this. Uh, And how my intellect explained it to me and how my ego explained it to me is, I'm too big to be at Seventeen Magazine. Now at the time, I don't think anybody knows this. I don't think I've actually talked about this publicly. But um, Hearst was courting me to go to Herbert's Bazaar. Mm. And I didn't want to go there. And I didn't want to go there anymore, even though it had been my dream, because I kind of, you could see the industry was changing. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were under a lot of financial stress. And I remember asking them, can this be art or does it have to be commerce? Because to me, to be back to the what I thought was the best part of Bazaar, you have to spend a lot of money and stop worrying about, mm-hmm. you know, and just make it gorgeous. And they were like, of course, everything is about commerce. And I was like, all right, mm-hmm. I don't want to be the asshole that fucking kills Bazaar. So um, I was just like, I'm too big to be. I thought I was such a big deal. Uh, and so I got Kevin Huvain at CAA. I got, um, you know, top literary agent, Jim Luke Janklow, all these like big macha men. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm leaving. And they were like, can we have a piece of what you're going to do next? And I was like, no. And they were like, we'll give you this amount of money. And I was like, no. And but really, I was saying no, because I knew I needed to detach. Right. That's where I can say in retrospect a part of me knew I needed to make a break, but I wasn't ready to be like, and now I'm going to be a stay-at-home mom. Right. And now I'm going to just get cupcakes smashed in my face by my sure. kids. Sure. It wasn't that. Or like, I used to joke, I used to be the shit, now I am shit. <laughs> you know, because my kids would be like taking a dump on me all the yeah. time. But um, but I wasn't ready to make that. So I just said, I'm going on my own. Mm. But then every deal they'd bring to me, and they were great deals, including book deal, a television deal, I'd say no. Mm. So I'd go right up to the final line. When it comes time to sign, I'd say no. And they were annoyed because that's how they make their money. Right. And the agents. And I remember saying to my husband, you understand why if they don't do the beveled, golden-edged pa- you know, pages in the book, why I wouldn't sign the deal? That's my vision. And he was like, actually, if somebody wants to write a book and they have a great book deal, they sign the book deal. They don't not sign it because they can't get beveled, golden edges. <laughs> and he's like, it doesn't sound like you want to be in business. Right. And that was a very important conversation because I was like, I think you're right. And at this time, too, we haven't talked about it. You had your own show on MTV, right? Mm-hmm. Or had you had that completed already? I, that had completed. Um, that was a reality show where you were offering somebody an internship. And, and to be on the cover of, of, of magazine. At the time, the reason I did that, um, at the time, reality shows were new. Uh-huh. The Osbournes and Jessica Simpson's show were yep. very, very big and mm-hmm. had uh, brought two brands that kind of had been dead back to life. Mm-hmm. And Seventeen had been killed by Cosmo Girl and Teen People. Mm-hmm. And our company bought it. And it was in very bad shape mm. when I went over there. And um, it's hard to turn an actual magazine around just by doing good content. It takes time. Yeah. And I wanted to do something fast. And Because you have to build uh, readers. and you Yeah. Have- and I'm also like, I'm like a fast, I'm not a typical editor like the typical editor-in-chief is somebody who's coming from a features background and uh, really smart, like that fabulous Katie Rossman who mm-hmm. wrote the piece on you. Like, yeah, she's the best. Can't be smarter, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a sharp, incredible writer and editor. Yeah. Um, I wasn't that. 
I just was a girl with a lot of guts mm -hmm. and like crazy ideas. So I wasn't going to finesse 17 with my excellent whatever um, <laughs> pedigree to being number one again. I had to do something fast and sexy. Mm -hmm. And so that was my idea. I was watching the Osbournes. I was like, well, if this old dude can be like the hottest thing in the world, maybe we can do that for this. Yeah. And we got the same team. MTV uh, greenlit, greenlit it, and it was very good for us. In fact, that year, although the show wasn't nearly like as big as the Osbournes or whatever, um, it brought a tremendous amount of revenue. Mm -hmm. um, so it was like our – I think it made the most revenue of all of the different lines. For the and magazine. in terms of being a reality show, did, how did you feel about it? Was it real? I mean, did you find someone you really liked? Oh, she's like – I love her. The person who won – many of the people who were the finalists, I – still I'm in touch with and I adore yeah it was great was it real that's not what I do mm. you know what I mean like I, it felt very forced to me mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they had a character they wanted me to play but I, I was doing it for the magazine yeah. um, that wasn't my thing yeah um, uh, but it was it was successful for us and then the next year um, when we saw it the ways in which it was successful, mm -hmm. what I did instead that was much better use of my time because it also took a lot of time of myself and my team, uh, we did a deal with America's Next Top Model. Right. And then we put that winner on the cover. We would be part of X number of episodes. It was much more contained. Yeah. Um, so we can actually work on what we do, which is making the magazine. And we were able to still bring in the ad dollars right. attached. So you have all these things going on mm -hmm. and finally you say, I'm done. Take yeah. me through that, like, moment. Of when I resigned? Or? Yeah, of the actual resignation where you had nowhere to go the next day. Oh, well, I, that was actually – so the resignation, but then I had all the agents. Mm -hmm. And so I did a year of all that dog and pony show of what's it going to do next? Right. And once I start – then I got pregnant. Mm -hmm. And that was what – that was kind of like how I – I've always been my, – my best friend David says this about me. I am such a brave person, but sometimes when it comes to making big changes, I make it so that the change is inevitable as opposed to being like, I'm doing this other than the time mm -hmm. when I left Hearst. Um, for instance, I hated firing people, but I would make it so uncomfortable for them. Mm. And I'd have a plan. I'd be like, all right, we've got to turn up the heat. That means we got to get them to quit. Wow. That's how I would do it. And even with my marriage, rather than saying, I want a divorce, I didn't sleep with him for five years. Mm. You know what I mean? To make it his decision. To make it his decision. Yeah. And ultimately, it was my decision to actually divorce. But, you know, he wanted to first, like, open the marriage, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but it's almost like it's too scary for me sometimes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to my safety. Right. Um, so with this, again, like, I got pregnant. And then I just kind of let all the other stuff go. And you took that seriously? You you loved having a child? I did. I mean, I took it seriously because mm -hmm. um, you can't not right, when they course. hand you the human yeah. being. Um, but I mean, that became your focus for the moment and you were okay with that. You didn't sort of have your ideas to go back into some sort of business and leave home life. I didn't think – yeah, no. I was not thinking that. Mm -hmm. There was a moment at which they called me for Cosmo mm -hmm. um, after my daughter was maybe like almost four. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. She's like three. And literally the day after I found out – I met with them, mm -hmm. I found out I was pregnant with twins. Oh, wow. And they were just like, naturally? no, thank you. Naturally. Oh I remember saying to my doctor, I thought this only happens if you do IVF. Right. And she was like – or also when you're getting older, because I was 39, she was like, your eggs start dropping. And oh, wow. if you hit it on the right day, you get to. Oh, my gosh. And that was such a blessing because the kids have all in different ways really been – have been my almost um, – my compass deeper into myself. Mm. Um, so I've learned a lot through parenting them. Um, and – and just watching them and being home and focusing on the inside and all of that stuff. Right, right. So – and that's kind of what I just want to, you know, get to with you for a second is you had it all. You decided to leave. You mm -hmm. decided to put your emphasis in you. Mm -hmm. 
ultimately, were you happy that you did that? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And talk about why, because I think so many people may not know that that's what they want to do or need yeah. to do and are too scared to do it because they're like, how will I make money? How, how do I find an identity then? Yeah. It's just me standing on my own. I don't even like myself. You right. know, I think that's really hard for people. A hundred percent. And brave of you. Well, and also, well, and I kind of, what, what's interesting is I think that most people, myself included, don't even know what's on the other side. Yeah. Which, to me, more than money, because also we were, like, my husband's uh, very successful mm-hmm. and finance guy, so got, you know, got the Birkins at the 92nd Street Y and mm-hmm. the house and blah, 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 you know, all, we had it all. And um, so that must have made it easier so you knew you didn't have to support yourself with right. this income. Well, one would say I manifested. So like when I was working, mm-hmm. he was not able to be successful because he was always kind of supporting me. Interesting. And then when I stopped working, he became much, much more successful and I was supporting him, meaning supporting him you emotionally. Know, emotionally and just to have As a, a wife. home base. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that he can be out in the world the way that I was out in the world mm-hmm. before and supporting him financially. And so in some ways, like I manifested this ability to be able to feel comfortable to go do this deep work. Um, but it was also the other thing you said, like, well, what was like that first day? Nothing is ever that binary. Mm. Because we do it all gradually. Yeah. I think everybody's always waiting for this one huge moment to happen, like a big floppy bird is going to come and catch you as you're falling out a window. But it just doesn't – it's gradual. Like I remember when I first stopped taking all the CAA meetings and looking at other projects, I just was like, I'm going to have a great summer in the Hamptons. Mm-hmm. And I was at like every fundraiser and just seeing people and just socializing and just relaxing and learning what it's like to sleep late. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I was just like, oh, I don't know what this is, but this is great. Mm-hmm. And then we did, you know, like it would be these little steps yeah. toward it. And then, of course, things get when you have a baby, it's faster. But what's on the other side of having it all is peace. Mm-hmm. And, like, when you're fighting so hard to have and to grab and to be whatever it is in your head you think you should be, there is a real unease Mm. inside of you and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And to let that go and to be – the other piece is being a rich person was really interesting. Um, people don't really talk about it, but like when you have money, you can avoid all discomfort Mm. pretty much like common discomfort. Like somebody meets you at the airport, you don't have to wait on any lines. You go, you go fly private, you do, but there is this sameness, like you're in a vat of vanilla ice cream drowning and I think that's why some of the ladies drink a lot during the day or do other things. And there's no contrast. Mm-hmm. And, like, you have to have some discomfort to have joy. Like, you right. have to have pain to have joy. And so that was kind of interesting to learn, too. But today, like, I just feel generally, like, I feel a lot of freedom. Mm. I feel a lot of peace. Um, I feel a lot of joy and very comfortable in myself. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so talk about who you are today, what you're doing today. Because someone with your personality and mine, I know for me, it's hard to not have something to look forward to or a project that you're working on. Or, I mean, I have a daughter who's 11, essentially, right now, and she is my everything. But at the same time, I know I need to find something that also I'm doing and not just putting everything yeah. into her. Especially as she gets older. Yeah, and and my twins are the same age as your daughter, and Mm -hmm. I have an older one too. Um, I think that what I'm most focused on is learning really about myself Mm -hmm. and how I can have the deepest love and commitment to myself um, because I feel like that is how I show up best in the world. And I also think that is ultimately my body of work. Mm. And so what I'm living right now, for instance, I'm going through a divorce. It is so hairy Mm. and ugly. And 
I'm not angry. Like, I'm in a really great relationship. He's actually in a great relationship for him. And, um, but yet there's still a lot of anger on his side. And so, like, how do I deal with that? And, like, how can I, you know, sometimes I get reactive. And how do I be not reactive and be responsive? And, like, I don't know, like, just going through going through life fully conscious and allowing yourself to feel like I'd have breast cancer. So I was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and going through that um, really consciously and feeling it and not, I don't drink. So Mm -hmm. I don't like, I don't have like a glass of wine. I don't um, allowing myself to just feel the grief when it comes about whatever it comes up about and processing it through. I'm just like learning a lot. Mm-hmm. I feel that it's actually the creation of my next body of work. Mm-hmm. I I don't feel the pr- I don't put the pressure on myself of mm-hmm. and you must create that body of work because I feel like I'm pregnant. Right. And just like a woman who's pregnant and wants the baby out, baby out, baby out. Like that's just a form of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it will come out when it needs to come out. And if it doesn't come out, well that that was my life. Mm-hmm. You know, and so how can I be in every moment and just present with what is, um, knowing that what I think ultimately I will want to communicate to people is this ability to just be here now and just be present. Mm -hmm. Um, And the great peace and freedom that comes with that and with not always wanting you know, something else in the future. Right. And be present. That's such a good lesson. Um, I was going to ask you what you think your legacy is, but I think you just said it. I mean, I think that's really important. Um, And how is your health right now? Yeah, no, I'm good. I mean, I'm, I, you know, we live in New York. Mm -hmm. We have great health care. So I am in the best hands. I don't, for whatever reason, some people have a lot of medical um, anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'm not one of those people. Um, You know, when I first found out about it, um, I was very surprised because I'm very, very healthy. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a common thing with cancer. Like people be like, well, I'm a vegan and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, I had like a moment of grief because I really um, am having so much trouble with my, my, my co-parent and his partner. Yep. And I was like, holy shit. Like what if my girls have to be raised by her? Mm-hmm. And to go through that like grief of – um, that might be a reality, and how can I really forgive, uh, you know, forgive her and forgive um, what, you know, what, what these wrongs that I perceive that, mm. that really get to me and just to also feel those wrongs and, you know, just be in these places that are so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, that didn't last a long time. I find that when you allow things to really be as heavy as they need to be mm-hmm. uh, without anesthetizing yourself, they flow through. Yeah. Um, and so I've just been doing a lot of that. And, like, when you say, like, what do you do every day? Like, I have two best friends, mm-hmm. and these two people are so important to me. And, like, I prioritize them. Um, I obviously prioritize my children before anything. But I ha- I go for a walk with my one best friend, like, not like a power walk, like a he's a chaplain and we talk about life, you know, almost every day. Mm. I mean, the other friend is a therapist. We talk for like an hour and a half and we're talking about real stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what extracurricular activities your kids do and I don't care. <laughs> um, but we're talking about like the real hard feelings of of life and um, big questions. And so that's all I do. I love it. Mm. That's great. Yeah. And it sounds like for you, that's really getting it out, kind of. It's like internalizing it. You've internalized things for a long time, your marriage or why things fail or mm-hmm. your health and how that's going to turn out. And it sounds like it's really good to feel it and be in the moment with that. I talk a lot about in some of my podcasts before, um, I think it's very important for people to feel feelings like a pendulum, like to the extent you can really be in the pain, the grief, the sorrow, whatever it is for you that's a negative, to that same extent you feel it on the other side, the happiness and the, the joy and the success. But so many people 
don't want to feel what's on the other side or they talk about it um, in a negative way or they Mm -hmm. do all sorts of things that, you know, get themselves to not be in that moment. I think you have to hang out in that moment because you learn from that and it makes you who you are. And if you don't, it just continues. Yeah. And in a lower, like, it just, it affects your life in a negative way. Right. Um, I totally agree. And that's mm-hmm. the, really the only way I think that you can experience joy and freedom. Yeah. Is and, to, and I also think it takes the fear out of being in a bad place. I mean, it's okay to struggle. You're not going to die. Right. Right. Like, right. It's not going to kill you. It just right. needs – it might feel terrible. And that's mm-hmm. the other piece, even like talking about it in a in a detailed way of that this is a physical sensation mm-hmm. that feels terrible. Mm-hmm. It does feel terrible, but like we are so quick to anesthetize ourselves. Like my form of anesthesia is uh, food. Yeah. You know, like I'll be like, I need a sandwich for whatever reason. Sandwiches are my thing. And it doesn't serve me. Um, and I still do it, you mm-hmm. know, like especially with the cancer. Like I've gained weight. Um, because you look I'm, amazing. You're so For sweet, people that are not like, watching this, you should know she looks unbelievable. I'm 20 pounds overweight, but that's not okay. But all. my point is I don't judge myself. Mm. Like I'm going through kind of a terrible divorce. I have cancer. I'm a single mom. And like, all right, so I have like a couple too many sandwiches a week. Um, <laughs> okay. Right, right. You can handle it. It'll be okay. Do you think you are happy now? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, happy is such a, again, like a binary word. Yeah. Like, I have so much joy. I have so mm-hmm. much gratitude. I have a lot of pain. Like, mm-hmm. the other day, I had a really bad day with the with the ex of just, like, the back and forth. Like, mm-hmm. um, and I got wrapped into it. Mm-hmm. And that was hard. Um, but uh, absent that, you know, like you said, you have to take both. It's yeah. like the bitter and the sweet. Right. You know? But you don't feel like you're still searching for your purpose or your happiness. Like you're okay with you right now oh, and where me. you're at. I don't need to be anything. Yeah. If I do nothing ever again, that's fine as long as I have the present moment. Mm-hmm. And and this whole idea of like, um, I don't know. Like I don't know what's ahead. Mm. And that's okay. Yeah. Right. That's right. called mystery. Another a, a reframe on that is mystery. Right. Absolutely. Um, there are a lot of people that want to know where to find you, where to listen to your stuff. What you talked about having a Substack. Mm-hmm. Tell people what a Substack is. That yeah. So Substack is this great online community that allows writers to just build their own little communities. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of people are probably even subscribed to Substacks without knowing it's a Substack because mm-hmm. it almost feels like a, a white label, but like a like a white box. Mm-hmm. Um, but Substack.com is where I write. Um, uh, pretty much weekly because of the cancer, it's been a little bit, um, a little bit more sporadic, but almost weekly. Mm-hmm. And I'm on Instagram, just my name, Atusa Rubenstein, mm-hmm. and I'm just kind of like. And you're always Open. giving great insight. And oh, whether or not sweet. it's about something that is for others to hear, it's it's a lot about, it's what, about you're, me. Yeah, yeah. what you're feeling. But it, I've found that it resonates with me, Thank you know, you. a lot of the things you say. So I think people will be really interested to. I feel like if I focus on me, mm-hmm. it might be helpful. Yeah. If I'm trying to help you, like, I, I don't know, like there's something like I'm not a know-it-all. I'm not an expert. I, I can only share what I've learned. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I wish you the best of luck in everything and with your health. And I can't wait to hear what's next. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review if you like what you hear. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at Patreon slash Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or guests that you want us to reach out to? Please email us at infomisunderstoodpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much, and I can't wait to see you next time.